My name is Abby Hartman Kukas. I am on the First Impressions team. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. I was trying to remember in the first service whether I will turn 48 or 49 this fall, and I'm still a little confused about it, and so 49, Kristen tells me. Um, I think uh, after a while they run together, you know, (laughs) but um, my generation was the last one that was born into a pre-internet world, right? I can remember pretty distinctly uh, Thanksgiving out at my grandparents' farm in Kentucky. We were all sitting around this big table that they had, and my uncle was an educator, and he was telling us about this new technology that he had heard about called the World Wide Web, that um, the way that I remember him explaining it was it was going to connect libraries all around the world so that libraries could share resources, which was going to make things like academic research a lot easier for people. Uh, and I can remember thinking like, well, what, I, okay, you know, that, how did, I don't see how that's ever going to help me, but good for you people who are in education. And I was thinking about that conversation this week and thinking about what it would be like if I could go back in time to that conversation, which I think was like in the late 80s sometime, and try to tell my family around that table about an iPhone, you know, and try to describe to them that this thing that, you know, it's about the size of your checkbook. Some of you don't even know what a checkbook is, but it's about the size of a, of a checkbook, but um, it's got like a camera in it, but it's like a really good camera, you know? Um, and then they would ask about film and I'd have to say, no, there's no film. You don't need film. Um, well, how do you print the pictures? Well, you don't, you can print the pictures at home over Wi-Fi. Well, what's Wi-Fi? Well, okay. So Wi-Fi Wi-Fi is kind of like a fax, but without the wires and a lot better quality. Um, but it, but it's also a video camera, and it doesn't need a tape for that either. Um, but the video camera is, like, really good. Oh, and one of the things that you're going to use a lot is it has all these GPS maps built into it, right? GPS. Okay, so GPS, that is kind of like an atlas, Um, except for you have like all the atlases and they're up to date and you get live traffic updates even. So you can kind of work your way around that. Um, and maybe the best thing is it has a web browser built into what's a web browser web browser. Um, that's kind of like yellow pages, but like super duper yellow pages because we don't have yellow pages anymore. We barely have like magazines and newspapers even because they're all right there on the phone. And it is a phone, it, I, I promise, but like nobody you actually know calls you, which is weird. We just text, right? What's well, text? Text is, uh, so text is kind of like passing a note in class, except to anybody in your contacts, because all your contacts are in your phone, because you don't need a Rolodex anymore or like a date book anymore. Your calendar is in there too. And it's like, and social media has social media apps on it. What is social media? Social media is kind of like a bulletin board in the lobby, except if everything on it's crazy or like half true, you know? And so we have that on, and it's a TV. 
at some point, right, everybody around that table begins to think that I'm insane, right? And they think, well, you're a crazy person because obviously all of those things can't, how could you even describe these things? And that's kind of how people thought about Ezekiel when he started trying to tell them the visions that God had given him of things, and they thought, well, you're crazy. In the 5th century, the Catholic priest named Jerome reported that Jewish rabbis wouldn't even let people read Ezekiel until they were at least 30 years old because they were sure that they would be so discouraged by Ezekiel that they just would completely walk away from the scriptures altogether. In the 1940s, the Journal of Biblical Literature published an article by a guy named E.C. Broom, and what he had done was he had gone back and, and psychoanalyzed Ezekiel, the prophet, not the book. He, he had read through the writings, and this was his conclusion about the prophet Ezekiel. He wrote, quote, that he was, quote, a true psychotic characterized by a narcissistic masochistic conflict with attendant fantasies of castration and unconscious sexual regression, schizophrenic withdrawal, and delusions of persecution and grandeur. Now, I would suggest that Broom lacked a little bit of intellectual humility in trying to psychoanalyze someone who'd been dead for 2,000 years. But nonetheless, me trying to describe an iPhone to my family in the 80s would be a lot easier than Ezekiel trying to describe what God showed him in the three main visions recorded in this Old Testament book that bears his name. The gap between my family that Thanksgiving and the iPhone is much smaller than the gap between us and the very throne room of God the Father, which is what Ezekiel is shown. So the book is defined by three main visions. In chapter 1 to 3, God comes to Ezekiel and calls him into prophetic ministry. In chapters 8 through 11, Ezekiel is shown um, kind of a replay or a flashback of things that had happened before when God's glory left the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And then in chapters 40 to 48, Ezekiel is given a, a hope-filled vision of the future when God's glory once again dwells with his people in his temple. And so that's the focus of the book, and because of that, it's going to be the focus of the sermon. But because that's the focus, what it means is we have to leave all kinds of meat on the bone of the book of Ezekiel. So we're not going to talk at all, for example, about the nine signs that God called Ezekiel to live out as his life becomes literally a living parable for the people of Judah. For example, we're not going to talk at all about the time that God made him lay on his left side for 390 days, one day for each year of the northern kingdom of Israel's punishment, or the additional 40 years for Judah, 40 days for Judah. We're not going to talk at all about the time that God made him cook his food over a fire that the fuel for which was human feces as a sign to Israel that they would be eating unclean food in a foreign land. 
We're not going to talk at all about him not being able to mourn his wife's death or or the time that God made him uh, dig his way through the entire wall of the city of Jerusalem and then grab all of his luggage and carry it through the hole and walk off towards the horizon as a sign to Judah of her impending exile. And there's nine of those. So we're not going to talk about any of them because the book isn't actually about Ezekiel. It's about the glory of Ezekiel's God. His life and his ministry are quite literally signs meant to point Israel and us to the glory of God that we might look for it and long for it, that we might treasure it. So then three truths about God's glory, one for each of these three main visions that we find in the book. First, if you'd like to follow along in your notes, is this, that God's glory has been revealed. God's glory has been revealed. Read this in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, the very beginning of the book. The prophet writes, In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Babylon's conquest of Judah and Jerusalem was underway. And Ezekiel had been trained as a priest. He worked in the temple as his job. And because of that, he was among those who were sent into exile in the first wave of exiles after Babylon began to conquer. They sent them back to Babylonia. And so they took people who had important jobs or symbolic jobs, people from certain um, influential families. They They were making a point with this kind of first wave. And Ezekiel and a a young man we'll meet next week named Daniel are among those first wave of exiles that get sent back. Jeremiah, who we met last week, remains there in Jerusalem. And you might recall from last week's sermon that one of the um, just delightful ministry callings God gave him was to go in and call for to the king and to the people of the city the final and full surrender to the Babylonian invaders outside the walls. So while Jeremiah is in Jerusalem doing that, Ezekiel is living in exile by the Kibar Canal, and he sees visions of God. He tries to describe what he sees. And we won't read all of it. I'm not even going to put it on the screen. You can just listen because I'm going to skip around a little bit. He, He tries to describe this first vision And he gets verses 4 to 14. He begins by describing these four creatures like this in part. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. They had a, a human likeness, but... Each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. They sparkled like burnished bronze, and under the wings they had human hands, and their wings touched one another. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a 
human face, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle. Their appearance was like burning coals, like, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. I'm skipping around a little bit there, but can you hear him struggling to find the language to try to describe what it is that he's seeing? Verses 15 to 21, he says, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the creatures. Their appearance was, was like gleam, the gleaming of barrel, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a, a wheel within a wheel, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. Verse 22 to 28, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse. It was shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. Verse 26, and above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. God's glory had been revealed to Ezekiel. And his response is nearly identical to the response of Job before him and in response to the apostle John after him. He says, when I saw it, I fell on my face. All too often in our day, I think, God is portrayed as some type of divine Santa Claus up into whose lap you can snuggle and ask for all the things you want. That is not biblical. The biblical response when God's glory is revealed is an awe-stricken, holy, fear-filled worship. It is the immediate and right response to being in the presence of the glory of God. There is a challenge, though, for the rest of the people who were encamped in that kind of refugee camp around the Kibar Canal, a challenge for us today, because only Ezekiel saw the vision. And so in chapters 2 and 3, God calls Ezekiel to be his messenger to faithfully relay the vision. We read this in chapter 3, 1, 4. The Lord said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. I think it's fair to say that there is almost zero likelihood that any of us are going to be given 
a direct vision into the throne room of God the Father. But like Israel before us, we have been given his word. And I know that sometimes it can be easy for us to think, well, why doesn't God just give me that type of vision? Why, why won't he just show me himself? Why don't he just speak to me directly? But we see in the New Testament, the apostle Peter had that experience. He saw Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard audibly the voice of God the Father speaking. And Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21, he says, of that experience of seeing and hearing, he says, but yet we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the way Ezekiel was, the way writers of all the books of the Bible were. And don't miss what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, look, this word that you have is more fully confirmed than even if your eyes had seen or your ears had heard. That this prophetic word that you have is more fully confirmed now on this side of the cross in Peter's day than it was to Old Testament Israel. Why? Well, because now, unlike Israel before us in the days of Ezekiel, we have seen the glory of God in the flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John writes of him in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. His glory has been revealed. We've been given his word. Do you consume it? Is it sweet to you? Do you eat your full of it? If not, if maybe you say, well, I don't even know where to begin with that, might I suggest that you grab one of these devotionals on your way out? It's on the table there, just outside the doors. We write these devotionals, Pastor Josh does, to go along with our series, and this one starts tomorrow getting ready for the book of Daniel next week. Grab one of these and it's just about a chapter a day, some reflection questions there. Just, just begin doing that because the glory of God has been revealed. It's been revealed to us in his word and in his son who is the word made flesh. Now in Ezekiel's day, that was utterly stunning. And we might take it for granted but they did not, because Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's in exile. He's living by the Kibar Canal. And throughout Israel's history, God's presence, God's glory had been with his people in a place. At first, they had encountered it on Mount Sinai as their representative Moses went up and a cloud descended and they could hear thunder and lightning and God speaking and they could see the glory in the cloud. Then the presence of God and the glory of God dwelt in the tabernacle in the middle of the camp of Israel as they traveled for 40 years through the desert. Later in the temple, in the inner, in the inner parts of the temple, in the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, 
there in the capital city of a kingdom that's ruled by kings who are descendants of David. But now, the kingdom years before had been divided and conquered. The city has been overrun. The temple is in ruins. Its priests, like Ezekiel, are scattered. There's not a Davidic king sitting on the throne. There's a puppet king who has been installed there by a pagan nation. For 800 years, Israel had experienced the glory of God like there. They could point to it. They could go to it. Not now. And so, for this truth to come to them through Ezekiel was utterly astounding. It's the second truth in your notes. It's the heart of this second vision that God's glory is not contained. It's not contained. Chapters 8 through 11 are this instant replay, if you will. It's a flashback. God shows Ezekiel something that has already happened. Starts this way in Ezekiel 8, 1 to 4. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. And he put out the form of a hand, and he took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me visions of God, brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north. So the Spirit is showing him in a vision the temple complex in Jerusalem. That's where he's what he's seeing. Where was the seed of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy? And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. And what follows is this series of expanding visions. God's glory leaves the Holy of Holies in the inner sanctum of the temple in chapter 9. Then God's glory leaves the temple complex itself in chapter 10. And ultimately, it leaves the city in Ezekiel eleven twenty three. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Now, the reasons... For God's glory departing his city and his temple and his people are laid out in chapters 12 to 24. We have talked about those in some length already in the series. We talked about them last week as we talked about why God's justice was coming to God's people. So we're not going to rehash those, but I would encourage you to go through and read them this week if you have not already. You will find in those chapters descriptions of sin that are so shocking it will, like some of you won't believe they're in the Bible. If I used illustrations in my preaching, like God uses illustrations in those chapters, some of you would look for another church. It's that offensive. Because Israel's sin was that offensive to God. Because our sin is that offensive to God and the language mirrors it. 
don't have time to get into it this morning. Here's the point, though. God's glory was not contained in an ark in the Holy of Holies or a temple on the top of a mount or a city that he said his name would be on or in a festival that they were having or even in one nation. Israel had gotten to a point where they loved those things, those places, those experiences more than they loved God himself. What they loved, what delighted them, what moved them was the beauty of the temple, the pageantry of the priesthood, the security of this city, the history of of their nation. So God took all of it away to show them that his glory was not contained in those things, in those places, in those experiences and rituals. His glory was with his presence. That's where it was to be found. The challenge that some of you face is that you are constantly trying to recreate or recapture or relive some religious experience that you had in the past. Some retreat, some conference, some Bible study, some season of time in your life. And look, God uses those things. Those are good things. We just praised him for using a retreat in the lives of nine of our students who gave their life to Christ. Praise God for those things. But but his presence and his glory isn't at that camp. Some of you can struggle sometimes to feel God's presence or, or to feel particularly spiritual or to feel like you're connected unless you have some person or some place around you, unless you're connected to that, maybe the church that you grew up in. Maybe devotional series by your favorite Christian author or a particular you know, worship song or, or style of worship song. And, you know, and if you don't have that, then you, you just don't feel it. Maybe even your favorite sermons from your favorite preacher. And that's what you really love. That's what fills your spiritual tank up. And again, there's nothing wrong with those things. My sermons are on a podcast. We have a music playlist on Spotify. God uses those things. But those things can't be a mediator to get you to God. His his glory isn't contained in those things. And sometimes what can happen if we're not careful is over time, we just slowly drift to a place where what you love, what, what you enjoy, what you seek isn't God It's just the things of God. Because the ritual is comforting. The people are nice. The songs are encouraging. It's just a blanket. Listen to how God describes in Ezekiel 33 this drift of Israel away from God and towards the things of God. Because the things they were doing in this chapter, they're not not bad. It's going to sound good, but their heart was far from him. Listen, he says, as for you, son of man, he's talking to Ezekiel, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, come, 
hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. They're inviting people to church. Come on, you got to hear this guy preach. Sermons are really good. Come, come and hear it. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. They love the sermons, Ezekiel. Love the music. Don't love the Lord. Sometimes what we need, me included, is just a reminder that God's glory is not contained in any one place or any one people or any one style or any one time in history, any one church, any one nation. God's glory is experienced in God's presence by people who are in a relationship with him by his grace through faith in Christ. That's where the glory of God is seen. And Israel thought they had lost that relationship because they lost the place. In a room this size, there are some of you who probably fear you've lost or are losing that relationship. It just doesn't feel the way it used to feel. Just feel a little dry. And you worry if you're honest that God seems far away. Thanks be to God, the truce in Ezekiel don't end with God's glory departing Jerusalem. Because in chapters 40 to 48, the prophet is given one last vision, one last great, hope-filled, grand vision in which is found this third truth that God's glory will be experienced fully. Will be experienced fully. Chapter 36, God promised that he would restore his people, but he says, I'm not doing it for their sake. I'm doing it for the sake of my name. In chapter 37, and I'll tell you that it kills me to be in Ezekiel and not preach chapter 37. This is my favorite passage in the book, but God shows Ezekiel how he's going to bring his people back to life. His people are portrayed as a valley of dry bones. He says, I'm going to bring them back to life through the preaching of the word. And then beginning in chapter 40, God shows Ezekiel, what is it going to be like when those reborn people are reunited with God in a reconstructed temple? Chapters 40 to 42 are this detailed description of that temple complex. And in chapter 43, the glory of God returns to the temple of God. Ezekiel 43, 1 to 5. He led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
Chapters 44 to 48 complete this description of a new temple filled with the glory of God. It includes a river that flows out of the temple in chapter 47. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel are inscribed on the gates representing God's people in chapter 48. And you get to the end and finally what you understand is that this is not a temple at all, it's a city. Ezekiel 48, 35, the final words of the book. And the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. The point of this third vision was not architecture, not a literal temple. It is symbolic. God's people, once again in God's presence, fully experiencing God's glory. To a people living in a refugee camp by the Kibar Canal, that was good news. As we've already seen in our study of the story, that temple was going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. We saw that when we studied through Ezra and Nehemiah. But I'll tell you that it's still good news to us today because the Apostle John was given a nearly identical vision in the book of Revelation. John, too, was living in exile, just like Ezekiel was. John had been exiled to the island of Patmos, and he's living about or he's writing about 20 years after Rome finally destroyed once and for all the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And in the vision he's given, the apostle John too sees a temple city inhabited by God in all his glory, in which the people of God represented in that temple city, not just by the names of the 12 tribes, but also by the names of the 12 apostles and the people who are there fully experience the glory of God forever. Revelation 21, 22 to 27. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or of moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Every time I see pictures of Orthodox Jews standing around the ruins of the foundation of the western wall of the temple in Jerusalem, they call the Wailing Wall, my heart breaks. Because the point was never the temple. It wasn't in Ezekiel's day. It wasn't in Jesus' day, which is how come he's going to say in John 2.19, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Because the glory of God didn't dwell in a temple made of stone. It dwelled in his son in the flesh. The point was not a building in our day point was to experience the presence of God. The point of all these things that we do, this building, the music, the preaching, the fellowship, the discipleship, relationships that we build, everything that we do is trying to live our lives in such a way, trying to build and be a church that is to the people around us a sign. 
We want to point people to the glory of God in Jesus Christ, his son. That's exactly what Ezekiel's life was. That's what Israel had stopped doing, that God was calling her to do again. And if you are a Christian, that is what our life is supposed to be, is what God is calling our church to be, a sign that points people to the glory of God in Christ. The point is that the people of God would fully experience the glory of God in the very presence of God. This is Jesus' prayer on the night before his execution. He writes in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And then in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's Jesus' prayer. I want them to know you. I want them to know me. I want them to see our glory. It's Jesus' prayer for you. It's God's message for you in Ezekiel. There's a phrase, know that I am the Lord. That phrase, know that I am the Lord, appears 88 times in the Bible. 72 of them are in Ezekiel. I want you to see my glory so you can know me. Three visions of God's glory so that you might know him. This is Jesus' prayer for you. It's God's message in the book of Ezekiel. While we do this, why don't we pray? Would you bow your heads? I'll just lead us in a time of response. We don't want to be like those people in chapter 30 who come and hear a good sermon and do nothing with it. So why don't you bow and we'll just walk through a few responses perhaps, beginning with, do you know the Lord? Do you know him? Have you been reconciled to him through faith in his son? If not, why not this morning? You could pray right where you are, just silently. There's no specific words. The promise of Scripture is that if you will place your faith not in yourself and in your goodness, but in Christ and his goodness, in the life he lived that you were supposed to but haven't, in the death he died that you deserved, you just say, Father, I deserve to be far from you in exile, but I believe that your son is who he said he is. And I want to be reconciled to you and spend eternity in your presence. Promise of Scripture is that all who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Maybe you've already done that, but if you're honest, his word isn't sweet honey in your mouth. Your belly's pretty empty of it because you barely consume it at all. Maybe you just need to ask for God's help that your heart would be bent to desire more of his word. If you ask God to give you a heart for his word, that is a prayer you can be assured he will answer. 
Or maybe you find yourself like Israel. You hear his word, but you do not do it. You just need to ask his forgiveness. Recommit yourself to following and obeying the word of the Lord. Do you long to see his glory or like Israel, are there places in your life where if you're honest, you just know you've drifted and you've become enamored with the things of God more than God himself? Just confess that to him. Ask him to renew your heart. Or maybe your prayer could simply be for our church. That as a faith family, we would experience more and more and more of the glory of God working in us and through us. That we might know him more as a family. If there's other ways God's laying on your heart to respond, would you just do that silently now? Father, all these things we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Because of whose life, death, and resurrection, by your grace, we can be assured to fully experience your glory forever. And we look forward to that day. But would you guard us and protect us against ourselves? We might not drift from you between this day and that. Bind our hearts to you. Draw us close to you. Let us experience your glory in your people, in your church, in your world, in your word. In Christ's name, amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.